Seeing Red, a true crime podcast. It's Bethan here and it is just me. So a quick couple of apologies. First of all, that it is just me. Um, We aren't supposed to be back fully, just the two of us. Um, Hopefully we will be really soon. To this week, it is just me because Mark is on holiday and he had so much to do before he went on holiday that he didn't get a chance to record this episode. So apologies from him that he's not with you this week. And apologies from me that this is going to be a little bit late. He kind of sprung it on me very last minute and I've never edited an episode before. So I am recording this and I'm going to do my best to edit. And I'm very, very sorry. Also an apology in case it doesn't sound as good as when Mark does the editing. He hasn't shown me yet. So I'm going to do my best and I'm very sorry if it doesn't sound as it usually would. Next time we'll be back to normal, I promise. The other apology is that we don't have any Patreon thank yous this week, purely because I don't know where we need to get up to, where we have thanked and who we haven't thanked yet. And I felt like it was a bit more important for me to just get this episode recorded and out for you guys before anything else happened. The other apology is um, about it being delayed because I recorded most of this and then my whole computer crashed, which was delightful. So I've had to start recording again. It's a bit of a weird one because it's my first time recording since having the baby where my husband has taken the baby and the toddler out and I've got the house to myself to record. So it's a good test for us, ready for me coming back to the show with Mark. So there we go. The good news after all of that is that this week's episode has been written by longtime friend of the show, Hayes Selby D. So thank you so much, Hayes. Um, Hayes was a bit worried that this case might be a bit too mainstream from us. But as much as we do love covering the obscure cases, we do also love mainstream cases. And Hayes has done a fantastic job with this. So I know it is going to be a corker of an episode. Back to normal sort of service pretty soon. So here we go, guys. Let's crack on this week. We've got a couple of show sponsors that will be in within the episode. First, I'm going to introduce it the way that it's written here. And this script is amazing. It's really, really good. I've had a quick read through and I've obviously recorded it once already as well. It's absolutely brilliant. And I think it's going to totally immerse you in this case. In the world of true crime, there are some stories so absurd, so fantastical that if they were the plot of a film, you would question the director's sense of reality. And this is one such story. Absolutely. This is a great way to introduce this. So a little bit of a warning for you all. Just please be aware. This case will include suicide, domestic abuse, PTSD and substance abuse. New Orleans is in the state of Louisiana in the USA near the Gulf of Mexico. It is often described as a vibrant city with a colourful mix of French, African and American influences and is most known for the carnival season known as Mardi Gras. So according to the neworleans.com, it's about a month or so of parties named for just one day, Fat Tuesday, the last day before Lent. But Mardi Gras is more in New Orleans. No one does carnival like the Crescent City. Beginning on 12th night, the 6th of January, the city is obsessed with eating, costumes, bead tossing, and parading that increases in intensity as Ash Wednesday draws near. On the weekends leading up to Fat Tuesday, parades roll all over town. And I'm going to tell you here, guys, I am such a fat Fat Tuesdayer. I love Pancake Day. I love pancakes. So yeah, I I like the idea of just let's all celebrate. And it's the lead up. You know, it's the last day before Lent. It's the lead up to Easter. It's incredible. 
However, as is often the case with party hotspots popular with tourists, there is a darker side to the city. New Orleans has one of the highest crime rates in the US and it comes in at number two in the crime index, with 100 being the safest, one is the most dangerous. There is a one in 86 chance of being a victim of a violent crime. On the 17th of October 2006, at approximately 8.30pm, the New Orleans Police Department received a call that would send them down a rabbit hole that no one could have anticipated. Initially, it seemed routine. There was a report of that a body of a man had been discovered on the roof of the parking lot of the Omni Royal Orleans Hotel on St. Louis Street, at the heart of the French quarter of the city. Upon arriving at the scene, officers could not immediately ascertain whether the man had been pushed from the rooftop bar of the hotel, had intended to complete suicide, or if it was just a tragic accident. But by the position of the body, the man had seemingly died on impact. As the investigators set about looking for identification on the deceased, they came across a note tucked into the man's pocket, and the note read, This is not accidental. I had to take my own life to pay for the one I took. If you send a patrol to 826 North Rampart, you will find the dismembered corpse of my girlfriend Addie in the oven, on the stove, and in the fridge, along with full documentation on the both of us, and a full signed confession from myself. Zach Bowen. What a note to find, oh my god. So before we delve into exactly who Zach Bowen was and what led up to this tragic turn of events, let's have a word from the first of this week's show sponsors. Zachary Morgan Bowen was born on the 15th of May 1978, making him just 28 years old at the time of his demise. Growing up, although described as charming and charismatic by some of his classmates, others were less enamoured by Zach's traits, referring to him as attention-seeking, although at 6 foot 10 in height, he often garnered attention without seeking it. Zach struggled as a teenager and he felt like the word failure followed him throughout his high school years, culminating in the devastation he felt when he was not voted homecoming king at his California high school in 1995 by his peers. However, by 18, he'd grown into an attractive young man and his height was now an advantage rather than an awkward hindrance. He left school and began working in bars and again, here, his height worked to his advantage. He was able to pass for older than 18. And it was here that he met Lana Shupak, a woman 10 years his senior, who worked as a stripper. Zach's chat-up line to her, would you like a shot of Jägermeister, did the trick, and they soon began dating. Lana was oblivious to Zach's age, 10 years younger than her, and she assumed that he was in his 20s like her. The deception was only discovered when she announced she was pregnant. Zach was mortified. He confessed he was only a teenager and he was not ready to be a child. And he was not ready to be a father. Lana decided to go ahead with the pregnancy regardless, and when their first child was born, something in Zach changed. He desperately wanted to be a good father and provide for his child, so they got married. And after their second child was born, he enlisted in the 709th Military Police Battalion in May 2000. Soon, Zach was deployed overseas. He served in Iraq, Kosovo and Bosnia. Zach was a popular member of his regiment, and Lana and her stripper friends would often send erotic photographs in the mail to boost the squad's morale. Naughty, naughty. And it's speculated that Zach's overseas tours might just have been the catalyst for his declining mental health. He witnessed not only members of his own troop being killed in action, 
and one of those included a woman called Rachel Bosveld, a petite female soldier to whom he'd become fiercely close and protective towards, but also two Iraqi children he'd befriended, one of whom was killed after being seen accepting a cookie from Zach. After rising up the ranks to sergeant, Zach decided he had seen enough conflict and he deliberately failed his physical examination so he could be discharged. Now, this plan did work, but in a way that further bruised his ego. He left the army not as a general with an honourable discharge, but as a general, open brackets, under honourable conditions, closed brackets, which meant that he wouldn't receive certain military benefits. When Zach got back home, he and Lana did try and make their relationship work for the sake of their children, but Lana struggled with Zach's change in demeanour. She noticed that he had become colder and more distant, and she eventually asked him to leave just a few months after he'd returned home from duty. Although this was a devastating blow to him at first, Zach soon began to embrace being young and single again and started working as a bartender in the trendy French quarter of New Orleans, and it was at this point in Zach's life where he met Addie Hall. Addie was what you might call a free spirit. She was bohemian, artistic, a fellow bartender, and some might say wild. Zach was mesmerised, and he immediately fell for her charms. Friends described their relationship as turbulent at best, and the pair lived in a perpetual cycle of working, drinking, partying, fighting, and making up. It was not a healthy relationship, but neither of them seemed able to walk away from it. And there's a quick note here that it's entirely possible by this point that Zach was suffering from PTSD due to his military service, so post-traumatic stress disorder. And in a comprehensive study published in the New England Journal of Medicine about the impact of mental health from the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, it is noted, respondents to our survey who had been deployed to Iraq reported a very high level of combat experiences, with more than 90% of them reporting being shot at and a high percentage reporting handling dead bodies, knowing someone who was injured or killed, or killing an enemy combatant. The percentage of study subjects whose responses met the screening criteria for major depression, PTSD or alcohol misuse was significantly higher among soldiers after deployment than before deployment, particularly with regards to PTSD. And Addie had also experienced trauma. She had a history of substance abuse which resulted in psychotic episodes. She had been in several destructive relationships and she had a very volatile personality. Once she was charged with assault because she threatened someone with a handgun. And in a nod to a recent episode we did entitled The Madness of Twins, there are also hints in this case towards the psychological disorder folie de, which loosely translates to madness of two. And that would definitely go some way to explain what happened next. In August 2005, Hurricane Katrina hit, and it hit hard. Katrina was a Category 5 tropical cyclone that caused $125 billion worth of damage, particularly in the city of New Orleans, which Zach and Addie had now made their home. Officials urged residents to leave town and seek safer accommodation, and most complied, but Zach and Addie resolved to stay put. It was an unconventional way of life, but it suited them both. In this practically empty French quarter of the city, Zach and Addie were inseparable. They served meals and stolen liquor to their fellow transients, and they were even photographed and interviewed for national magazines during this period of unrest. They became almost like royalty among the disenfranchised. And a quick Google search will provide you with countless pictures of the pair living their best life. We will definitely put some on social media. 
As life gradually returned to something vaguely resembling reality, the cleanup process began and people started to return to rebuild their lives. Now, this new way of living didn't sit well with Zach and Addie. They'd almost overnight gone from these heroes of the hour to social pariahs. Their unconventional ways were no longer seen as quirky. The street bonfires and excessive drug use and alcohol consumption were being replaced with social responsibilities. Zach had an ex-wife and two children to support, much to Addie's dislike, and her antipathy towards Lana was blatant. Although Addie had agreed to meet Zach's offspring, she was certainly not stepmother material and she used to refuse to speak to the boy and girl when they visited and sometimes would choose to stay with her friends if they were staying overnight with Zach. The drinking and drug taking continued, but Zach and Addie knew they had to make changes to their lifestyles if their relationship was to survive. And it was at this point that they saw the for rent sign above an apartment on Rampart Street. So this apartment was over the notorious voodoo temple of priestess Miriam Chamani. She was a well-known and liked character in the neighborhood. So they immediately made an offer and they quickly moved in, excited about their fresh new start. Needless to say, it was not to be a fresh new start. After just a few boxes had been unpacked, Addie, who was tired of Zach's constant lies and cheating, went to the landlord and asked for the lease to be rewritten in her name only. Understandably, Zach was furious at the deception. This was the catalyst for what happened next. A year after the devastation of Hurricane Katrina on the city, Zach Baum went on to cause a different kind of destruction. A quick warning now. Um, the following description of the crime scene discovered by the officers when they entered the apartment is really shocking. And if you would prefer to skip this, I would skip forward about a minute and a half. The apartment was carnage. There were two pots on the stove. One pot contained Addie's head, burned beyond all recognition. And then the other, her hands and feet. There were chopped vegetables next to the pot containing the head, as though Zach had contemplated making a stew. Addie's torso and other pieces of flesh were in the refrigerator and her limbs were discovered inside the oven on turkey basting trays. One of the trays appeared to be seasoned. Although this does suggest an element of cannibalism, the chief of detectives, Anthony Canatella, said later that Zach's autopsy, carried out 13 days after the murder took place, showed no evidence of human flesh being consumed. However, this did not stop the New York Post from accompanying their piece on the murder with the grisly and somewhat misleading headline, Gal Pal Gumbo. Spray painted on the walls were various messages, including Zach's ex-wife Lana's phone number and the words, I'm a total failure and please help me stop the pain. And as if there could be any doubt as to the perpetrator of this heinous crime, Zach had left a confession written on eight pages of Addie's journal, including his full name, his date of birth, his social security and driving license numbers written neatly at the top. It started, today is Monday the 16th of October, 2am. I killed her at 1am, Thursday the 5th of October. I very calmly strangled her, it was very quick. Halfway through the task, I stopped and thought about what I was doing. The decision to halt the first idea and move to plan B, the crime scene you are now in, came after a while. I scared myself, not by the action of calmly strangling the woman I've loved for one and a half years and then desecrating her body, but by my entire lack of remorse. I've known for forever how horrible of a person I am. 
ask anyone and decided to quit my jobs and spend the $1,500 in cash I had being happy until I killed myself. So that's what I did. Good food, good drugs, good strippers, good friends and any loose ends I may have had. I didn't contact any of my family so that'll explain the shock and I had a fantastic time living out my days. It's just about time now. So continuing, Zach went into great detail about what he did with the body before finally dismembering it. So he claimed to have sexually violated the corpse on numerous occasions, although detectives disputed this, before eventually he passed out on the futon next to the body. The next day he went to work delivering groceries as if nothing had happened, laughing and joking with his colleagues. When he returned from work that day, he carried Ali's lifeless body to the bathroom, placed her in the bath and began severing her limbs with a knife and a hacksaw. In a bizarre twist, Zach appeared to have spent a great deal cleaning the bathroom afterwards, despite he'd left the kitchen in a blood-soaked mess. Maybe he appreciated taking a bath more than he did preparing food. Who knows? It, It shows that there was no real logical thought, I guess. And back to the confession, the pages contain several mentions of Zach's perceived failures. School, jobs, military marriage, parenthood, morals, love, Every last one of these I failed at, hence the 28 cigarette burns, one for each year of my existence. And finally, as detailed in the confession, Zach then went on a drug and alcohol fueled binge with the $15,000 he had left in the bank. Prior to completing suicide, he had been drinking since the early afternoon on the rooftop bar where he eventually jumped to his death and surveillance footage from the hotel would later show Zach hesitantly kind of pacing back and forward towards the ledge and then back away before eventually he just did it he leapt over the railings and as mentioned in the intro this could be the plot of a bad film and well yes it has spurned countless movies television dramas and songs and these include the 2013 film Zack and Addy which features priestess Miriam Chamani as herself And controversially, you can also visit the Bloody Mary New Orleans Haunted Museum, which opened not long after the tragedy. Here you can see the stove upon which Zach cooked his girlfriend's head and the fridge where leftover pieces of flesh were kept. Unsurprisingly, friends and family of the couple were disgusted that the apartment had been turned over to a tourist attraction and objected to this glorification of such violence. Capriccio de Velas, which is an incredible name, who was a friend of both Zach and Addie, said... It's pretty despicable and atrociously exploitative. However, the owner, Mary Millian, who describes herself as a Catholic-raised voodoo priestess who can communicate with and heal the spirits of the dead, insists that this is meant to educate and pay tribute. Jonathan Bailey visited the museum with his girlfriend and was shocked to see bride and groom Chucky dolls and photographs of the couple splattered with blood, and he took to Facebook to write about his experience, which he described as terrible. His post was shared widely and it led to a campaign to close the museum down, but it is still up and running to this day. So I'm interested to hear from our listeners. Would you be interested in going and visiting? Would you want to see this? Would you be the tourist or would you be the person who says this is too far? Regardless of whether or not you agree that murder sites should become tourist attractions, for example, Jack the Ripper tours are still very popular in London, have been for decades, this tragic tale left two children without a father and Addie's friends and family devastated by her violent end. Lana Shupak is now in her early 50s and she lives in Gretna, Louisiana. She has not spoken publicly about her ex-husband, 
probably to protect the identities of their children. And although their names can be found online with a bit of searching, Hayes chose not to use them here and I think that is absolutely the correct thing to do. So we're going to end the episode by remembering Addie through the lyrics of the song The Ballad of Addie and Zach by Gal Holiday and the Honky Tonk Review. I'm not going to sing, obviously guys, but I will read this out to you. It's like a poem. And um, there we go. Thank you very much, Hayes, for writing this episode. And thank you very much, everybody, for listening this week. I'm sorry it's a bit unusual. Sorry it's just me and not me and Mark. But so far, so good with the husband taking out the baby and the toddler. Hopefully, we're on to a bit of a winner here. And if he can take her out in the pushchair a little bit more often like this, I can get back to recording with Mark. It'll be really nice to get back to it. I really have missed doing the show and I really do miss it whenever I have a bit of a break. So there we go. I apologise again that this is a little bit delayed and I apologise if the sound quality isn't as amazing as it normally would be with Mark's editing. But hopefully the incredible script and the incredible storytelling that Hayes has has kind of crafted here will overshadow that entirely. So thank you very much for listening. We'll be back next time with possibly both of us but probably just mark so before i finally finish the show i'm just going to read you the lyrics of that song so this is the ballad of addy and zach by gal holiday and the honky tonk review listen dear addy poor addy hall it's not your fault it cost his soul when he lost control poor poor addy hall these are the dark and wild times here is the new frontier gone are the woman and the man that i will tell of here when Uncle Sam called Zach Baum was brave and he made his pappy proud, back home he met a sweet young thing, a new life he had found. He never spoke about the vow he'd made or what he'd done. The darkness that lay deep inside was beating like a drum. He did commit a blackened deed, the devil's feast was lame, and though he wished it all a dream, he knew that he must pay. I'll not detail for gentle ears, more for it was grim, but when the sunlight showed its face, he'd torn her limb from limb.